This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 34. If you brought your Bible with you this morning, you can turn there. It starts on page 463 in the Bibles in your row and is printed in your order of worship if you'd like to follow along as I read. Psalm 34. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abilamech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and turn your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again. We are looking at the Psalms uh, in this series uh, at the beginning of the summer, and I think a few weeks ago when we started the series, Brian quoted uh, John Calvin uh, saying that the Psalms really are the anatomy of the soul, meaning that whatever is going on in your heart, there's a psalm for it, right? There's a psalm for that. A little bit like that old Apple, you know, app store commercial. There's an app for that. There is a psalm for every kind of situation. And in addition to that, there are some psalms that can meet you in all kinds of different places. So not only is there a psalm for every kind of situation, there's some psalms that actually span the whole of human experience. Psalm 34 is one of those. If you have your Bible open, you can look at verse 5 and verse 18 just for a minute here at the start. Verse 5 and verse 18. Verse 5 says, Those who look to Him are radiant. Verse 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And saves the crushed in spirit. I wonder, where do you find yourself on that spectrum this morning? Do you come in here radiant, right, shining because things are going so well in life? Or are you brokenhearted and crushed in spirit? This psalm 
has something to say to both of those experiences and really everything in between. Now, it's a little hard to, to break this psalm down structurally. In fact, if you had 100 sermons on Psalm 34, I think probably uh, it would be broken up a, you know, 100 different ways with 100 different preachers. And, and the reason it's hard to break it down is because it's written as an acrostic in Hebrew. Each verse of Psalm 34 in Hebrew begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so the poetic device sort of drives the structure uh, of the psalm, rather, it's much like if you were writing a haiku or a, a limerick in English, right? Uh, uh, the, the poetic device shapes the psalm more than any thematic structure might. But if you had to, you could see it in halves. For example, verses 1 to 10, David is saying something like, Listen to my story, it could be yours. Listen to my story, it could be yours. And then the second half, verses 11 to 22, he's saying, Listen to my teaching. Because it could save your life. But I actually want to look at it a different way this morning. I want to think through this psalm with the lens of spiritual practices in mind. Spiritual practices that you can employ no matter what kind of circumstance you might find yourself in. Whether you're the radiant face of verse 5 or whether you're the broken spirit of verse 18. What God-honoring spiritual practices can we engage in? And David gives us seven in here, so buckle up, okay? Well, before we even get into it, let me say uh, a little context. Uh, you heard Gabby read at the beginning, there was a header to this psalm. In most of your Bibles, you'll see a superscript. It says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and went away. Now, what's happening here, this is a reflection from David on a narrow escape that he'd had from King Saul, who was hunting him down. David was on the run. He's hard-pressed. He's in a tight spot. 1 Samuel chapter 16 uh, tells us that David had been anointed as the king. There's a problem. There already was a king. And you know what happens when there's contested thrones, right? King Saul goes into a murderous rage, and he hunts David down. And when you get to 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, David is fleeing, and he flees into the land of the Philistines. And what's interesting about that is David had fought against the Philistines, uh, really all throughout 1 Samuel. They were his enemies, right? So that shows you how bad things were at home when you find yourself running for refuge into the land of your enemies, right? This is not a good situation. So he gets to a city called Gath, a Philistine uh, uh, outpost, and uh, he thinks he's going to blend in, perhaps. This will, he'll hide out, but he's recognized. And so some folks drag him before uh, the, the ruler of the city-state, the king, and, and say, well, this is David. This is, the, this is the guy that they're singing songs about, all the Philistines that he's killed. And remember, he's the one who killed Goliath too. And so David is brought before the king, and he knows this is not a good situation. This is dangerous. And so what does he do? David pretends to be insane, he pretends to be a madman, and it works because the king's like, this weirdo is no threat to me, and why are you bringing him before me? This is a waste of my time. He's no threat, and he sends him out, lets him go, and David escapes. And so that's the backdrop here. Psalm 34 is David looking back on this narrow escape and praising God for it. And so the question then to us is, what spiritual practices do we learn 
from David's song here in Psalm 34. And, and there's some unusual ones. They're not probably your typical ones that you might think of as spiritual practices to employ, but, but I want you to think about them this morning. The first one is the practice of boasting. Verse 2, David says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Now, what does it mean to boast in the Lord? In the ancient world, boasting was a part of warfare. So how do you get your soldiers to charge you know, in the face of almost certain death? How do you get them to ride off into battle? Well, you start with a boast. A ritual boast was when the captain or the general or the king would get up and say something like, our hands are strong enough, our spears are sharp enough, our numbers are numerous enough. I don't know, that's not very inspiring. But everybody would cheer, and then boom, they ride off into battle. And you've seen this kind of thing even in movies and stuff, right? Uh, Braveheart. For those of you who can remember back 25 years ago or whatever, the, uh, there's a scene in that movie. The Scots are about ready to take off because they're so outnumbered by the English. One of them says, the English are too many, you know, and they're, they're, they're shaking in their boots. And then Mel Gibson rides up and his face is all painted and he gives the famous freedom speech. And they charge into battle. A more literary example of this is the St. Crispin's Day speech. Henry V, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. It happens in sports all the time, right? Win one for the Gipper or any Friday night in a high school locker room all across our city. A boast is how you get yourself ready to charge. A boast is how you get the confidence to do what needs doing. And the Bible knows Everyone boasts in something. Everybody boasts in something. We studied 1 Corinthians here at New City a few years back. And really, most of Paul's letter is about this. Most of Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, is Paul deconstructing the things that the Corinthians are tempted to boast in. Knowledge, wisdom, rhetoric, position, power, sex, gifts, talents, money. And the Apostle Paul says over all that, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So it is worth stopping to ask, just a little self-reflection this morning. What is it that you boast in? I mean, we all psych ourselves up somehow, right, to go out and face the world. So what do you boast in? What do you look to that validates you, that strengthens you, makes you confident to tackle the things that are before you? The modern self-esteem movement is filled with boasts, right? Tell yourself that you're beautiful. Tell yourself that you're great. Tell yourself that you're smart. Social media is filled with boasts. Look how exciting my life is. Look how amazing this meal is. Look how cute my kids are. Some people boast in their morality. Much of religious life is based on this. I obey the rules. Well, David, he could have boasted in his strength, right? They were singing songs about him. Saul kills his thousands, but David kills his ten thousands. That's the songs that are going around about David. He could have boasted in his strength. He could have boasted in his cleverness. After all, he pulls off this fake madman routine. That's pretty good. He could have felt good about that. He could have boasted in his knack for narrow escapes. This is one of many of these kind of close calls that he has in his life. But instead, David says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. And then he says, you should too. Your soul should do that too. 
My friend, Beth Guckenberger, who started back-to-back ministries with her husband, Todd. They work in orphan care, and one of the things they do is an exercise with the children that they work with is they, they write down all the promises of Scripture that are given to children, or all the promises, even more particularly in Scripture, that God's, all the things that God says He'll do for the orphan. And they write all these things down on pieces of paper, and then they literally stand on those promises. You see what they're doing? They're boasting in the Lord, charging into the world based on what God has promised, standing on that foundation. The first practice we see here that David employs and we should employ is that of boasting in the Lord. But secondly, and the second practice is singing. Now just note here, Psalm 34 is a song. David is a songwriter and a prolific one at that. Many of the psalms have musical terms attached to them as headers. Almost all the songs we've been singing this morning are based on psalms. Look at verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. He's talking about singing. Ted Gioia, I think I'm pronouncing that right, is a music historian He studies uh, innovators whose music serves as a catalyst for change and a source of enchantment in human life. And a piece he published just a couple of weeks ago was about, uh, it's kind of a bizarre story, it's about a strange man who could reportedly put out small fires with the right tonal vibrations in certain kinds of music. So he could play music with a certain kind of tonal vibration, and apparently it would, would put out fires. But in response to that, Gioia, in this larger article, wrote, writes this. He says, I've long been obsessed with the hidden power of song. I'm not talking about how music entertains us, or even its higher artistic potentialities, but something bigger and grander. I look to music as a change agent in human life, even as a transformative force in human history. Song is a source of enchantment and a catalyst for change. Any philosophy of music that doesn't respect this remarkable capacity misses much of the point of human music making. As a music historian, I've learned that we hardly possess words to describe the potentiality of song. Although each of us feels it in our heart and soul, at times this power is so strange and beyond expectations that it almost seems magical. He says music is a change agent in human life. That's why it's so important to sing no matter what the season. Notice David says, I will bless the Lord when? At all times. This might make sense for us in good times. We often sing to celebrate concerts, parties, New Year's Eve. We should sing in hard times too. Paul and Silas get thrown into prison in Acts 16, and what do they do? It says they were praying and singing hymns to God. Singing at weddings is great. Singing at funerals is crucial. There's power in music. There's power in singing, so I guess to apply it, sing. You can practice here on Sundays. And dads, I don't really have much Father's Day application, so here's one, okay? Dads, your kids are watching you. Sing. They're wondering, is the Lord worth praising? You can show them. Sing. Third practice that David shows us, spiritual practice, is thanking. 
or maybe you'd say it, giving thanks or thanksgiving or gratitude. David remembers what God has done for him and then he responds by giving thanks. Verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. Why? Verse 4, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Now not everyone is a fan of gratitude or giving thanks. Nietzsche, the German philosopher, hated it. In fact, he lumped gratitude in with humility, and he called this part of slave morality. And instead, Nietzsche advocated what he called a fierce independence. That's where power comes from. That's where strength comes from. Not giving thanks, not attributing things to others, but attributing it all to your own agency. That's where strength comes from. But as it turns out, gratitude or thanksgiving is actually good for you. A few years ago, during Thanksgiving week, the New York Times did a story on the recent social science research concluding that being thankful leads to, quote, increased life satisfaction, happiness, optimism, hope, positive emotion, and less anxiety and depression. Thankfulness also leads to better sleep, and some studies show less susceptibility to illness. Giving thanks is something we can and should practice all the time. In the New Testament, Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. One of my favorite authors, G.K. Chesterton, puts it this way. He says, you say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the concert and the opera and grace before the play and the pantomime, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. That's a real practical application. John Wesley used to make a daily practice of counting his blessings. Literally, he would count his blessings. He used to keep a little journal, and he called it a blessings inventory. Each day, he would just sort of bullet point the things that he was thankful for. A cup of coffee, a call from a friend, a meaningful song in worship, the sunshine, a Red's victory, whatever. You know, he would write them down. But here's the key point. Don't just give thanks generally, but give thanks to God specifically, who's the giver of all good gifts. Gratitude is always personal. It's not enough just to be thankful in general or to tweet, you know, hashtag blessed behind something. But in gratitude, we need to recognize the one who has blessed us. So boasting, singing, thanking. Fourthly, tasting. Verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. In 1734... Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon uh, that he titled, this is the title of the sermon, A divine and supernatural light immediately imparted to the soul by the Spirit of God shown to be both a scriptural and rational doctrine. What a man, right? (laughs) The title of a sermon. They don't do that anymore. They don't write them like they used to. But in this sermon, right, Jonathan Edwards, uh, he says this. He says, um, it's one thing to know intellectually That honey is sweet. You can read that in a book. It's one thing to know that honey is sweet. It's another thing entirely to taste the sweetness of honey. Those are two different ways of knowing. And he says the second 
is what we're to be moving toward in our spiritual life. Edward says, you can doctrinally know that God is holy and gracious, but that's not the same thing as having a, this is his words, a heartily sensible experience of the presence of God. You can have the knowledge that God is love, but there's another thing to experience that God loves you or the experience of being loved. And as a spiritual practice, this is, Not something that you can exactly control, is it? And I can't give you a formula for this. But it is something to ask for when you pray. It is something to long for as you come to worship, as you read your Bible, as you commune with God. And this tasting that the Lord is good, this was a sustaining thing for David when he was in the depths because he had tasted God's goodness. He had seen, he had experienced the Lord's love for him. Boasting, singing, thanking, tasting, and then fearing. Verse 9, David says, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. Verse 11, Come, O children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. We could have added an eighth practice here, teaching. Uh, Verse 11 sounds a lot like the book of Proverbs. If you go through the book of Proverbs, it's a wise father telling his children, passing along to his children how to live. And David really is doing that throughout the whole of this psalm. It it fits that kind of uh, process. He's teaching, he's sharing, David is, what he's learned. But here he talks specifically about fear. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Now, it's interesting, back in verse 4, he says, God delivered me from all my fears. But here in verse 11, he says, now I'm going to teach you the right thing to fear. God's delivered me. From all my fears, but there is a fear that you should have. Now, what does that mean? Well, what do you, when you fear something, that thing, whatever it is, that becomes uh, the biggest thing in the room. It becomes the thing at the forefront of your consciousness, right? If you're really afraid of something, that's what you're aware of, that's what you're thinking about, that's what's consuming your attention. And there are good fears, right? If you're skiing in the mountains and you're near a precipice, and it's dangerous, then there is such thing as a healthy fear uh, of that precipice, and that will determine then how you ski, where you ski, what care you take when you ski near that area, and so on, right? And when David says, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord, he's talking about a reverential fear in the sense uh, of something that so demands your attention. It's so weighty that it demands your attention and respect and then begins to shape how you live and how you act and even how you feel. The fear of the Lord is having an awe-inspiring view of God. His presence is so big, so weighty, that it affects literally everything. And David says, if God has that place in your life, you will have no lack. Not that you'll get everything that you want, but that even when you're in a hard time, like David was here in the psalm, you'll have what you need. John Newton, famous Christian pastor and writer once wrote a letter to someone whose sister was gravely ill. And this is what he read. This was a pastoral letter to a friend. He said, your sister is much upon my mind. Her illness grieves me. Were it in my power, I would quickly remove it. The Lord can, and I hope will, when it has answered the end for which he sent it. All shall work together for good. And then listen to this. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. When your heart fears the Lord, 
You will lack no good thing, at least no thing needful in your life. And the next practice David describes for us is obeying. Verse 12, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Pretty straightforward and simple, right? Watch your tongue. Stay away from evil. Do good. Seek peace. Now, who would disagree with that? That's really good advice, counsel. That's something I think we would all agree with. But listen, we'd all sign on to this as a good way to live. But when you're hard-pressed, when you've been wronged, when an injustice has come your way, what are you most tempted to do? Lash out with words. Look for revenge. Sit in your victimhood so that you're not proactively thinking anymore about doing good. And then finally, right, you think, if I didn't disturb the peace, what responsibility could I possibly have to seek the peace? And there's a place in the New Testament that's doing much of the same thing that... that, uh, um, David is doing here in Psalm 34. First Peter chapter 3. Peter's talking to people who are in a hard place. He's talking to the persecuted church in Asia Minor. They've had a hard time. They've not been treated well. They've, uh, there's been injustices perpetrated against them. And then Peter says this. First Peter 3, starting verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then Peter quotes from Psalm 34 extensively. Spiritual practices, boasting, singing, thanking, tasting, fearing, obeying, and then finally trusting Verse 15, it says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears toward their cry. Verse 17, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. What David is saying is, whatever is going on in your life, God sees, God hears, God knows. These are reasons for confidence. These are reasons to trust Him. The eyes of the Lord are on you. The ears of the Lord are attentive to your cries. The face of the Lord is against injustice, verse 16. So He'll stick up for you, in other words. And then verse 18, He's near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Can you trust a God like that? Now, there is some sober realism here, though. If you go down to verse 19... Who's down to, he says, uh, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. In other words, God does not promise that the righteous will have no troubles, just that he will be with them in the midst of those troubles. He doesn't promise to stop a heart from breaking, but to mend the broken heart. And when you get to verse 20, it says this, he keeps all his bones Not one of them is broken. Now, what does that mean? Because David knows that bones break. In fact, Stephen in the New Testament, first martyr in the New Testament, 
He's described as a godly man, as a righteous man, and as they stoned him, threw stones at him, his bones were broken, his body was crushed. So we shouldn't read verse 20 literally. I think actually what David is doing is a little bit like Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 21. In Luke 21, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the persecutions that they're going to face. In Luke 21, verse 16, Jesus says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Some of you will be put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. Now, how does that work? What Jesus is saying, what I think Psalm 34 is saying, is that even if the worst comes, God will keep his people intact at least in an eternal sense. Now that said, there is one person for whom verse 20 was literally true. There's a place in John chapter 19 where uh, John is talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And in Roman crucifixions, usually the cause of death, you might know, was suffocation. You'd have to sort of hold yourself up on the cross in order to breathe, which of course was excruciating because you'd be holding yourself up, your arms and your legs, by pressing onto the nails that were through your limbs, right, in order to get a breath. That's actually where we get the word excruciating from, the Latin word for cross. Sometimes the executioners would speed things along. The prisoner was not, or the, the person being executed was not dying quickly enough. They would break the legs of the one that was hanging on the cross. But that did not happen for Jesus. He dies before they do this. And when the Apostle John sees that, his mind runs right to Psalm 34, verse 20. And he quotes it in John chapter 19. Jesus Christ is the truly righteous one. He was the one who called out to God and God did deliver him, but not from death, but through death, so that he could pay for our sins, so that he could bring us to God. The work of Jesus is why that final verse of Psalm 34 can apply to you this morning. Because if you trust in him, your life, the Bible says, is now so hidden with Jesus, so caught up with Jesus, who died for your sins, who rose to new life, and even now who sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. For that reason, Psalm 34, 22 applies to you. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, none of who those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Or as Paul puts it in the New Testament, there is there, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Trust in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Boasting, singing, thanking, tasting, fearing, obeying, trusting. Which of these spiritual practices does God want you to press into this week? Something for you to think about, something for you to talk about at lunch afterwards. But I'll give you one last story, and then we'll be done here. There's a man uh, named John Scenic. He was born in 1718, youngest of seven children. And uh, even though he grew up around the church, he never really embraced Christianity and Eventually, he found himself, as the years went on, in a tight spot. He was feeling rejected. He was uh, alone. 
He'd failed. Some of the things that were bad in his life had happened because of uh, things that he did, but some of the things that happened in his life were uh, difficult because of things done to him. It was a dark time. But then the sun broke through. And this is how his biographer describes it. It was at an ordinary church service that the great illumination occurred and through the application of the healing word. On Sunday, the 6th of September, 1737, the psalm for the day was the 34th. Greater the troubles of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all, and they that put their trust in him shall not be destitute. No sooner had the singing ended, they were singing Psalm 34, no sooner had the singing ended than the burden was removed from his soul, and he found a glad deliverance. An ordinary church service, the 34th psalm, glad deliverance. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, there's a whole lot for us in this psalm, in Psalm 34. Too much, in fact, to try to learn or grasp or apply in any single message. But Lord, we we do ask that you'd help us to press into one or more of these practices that we see here this week, this month? Would you help us to know what it is that you are leading us toward? What would be the next steps in our own walk with you? And would you help uh, this service this morning to be more like a a sustaining meal than uh, a package of information that we have to hang on to? Would you feed us and sustain us so that we might uh, indeed have the, the courage Uh, the energy to go out and live for you in the world, to face the things uh, that we have to face. May we know and believe that those who take refuge in you would not be condemned. This we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcityc.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.